The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. Good evening, everyone. It's really a pleasure and an honor for me to be here to be able to introduce our speaker this evening, Dr. Deepak Chopra. As many of you might know, Dr. Chopra is really an internationally renowned pioneer and expert in the field of mind-body medicine, in the field of human potential, in the field of well-being. He's been speaking on these topics for over three decades, speaking around the world, and in addition to speaking, providing um, lots of written material, including over 80 books on these subjects. I imagine many of you here are familiar with these books and have read at least some of them. I have an image here of his most current book, which is titled Super Genes, and I think Dr. Chopra will be speaking about it this evening. This book he wrote with his co-author, Rudy Tanzi, who's a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. And this book is the second of two they put together, the first one about a year and a half ago, titled Super Brain. And both of these books are really relevant to why we're here tonight in terms of this focus on public health. Public health is about well-being. The health of the public is based on the health of the individual. And to have a healthy public, we need healthy individuals. And Dr. Chopra's work over the years has been devoted to teaching us and inspiring us how do we nurture and cultivate well-being and health within ourselves. And I'm grateful for Dr. Chopra here to speak with us this evening uh, uh, to further advance our understanding of well-being and how it applies to the world of public health and our new institute here. So thank you, Dr. Chopra. So before um, I launch into my talk, um, let me show you a video first. It's about three minutes, and it's uh, about what happened after your parents uh, came back from that uh, picnic.
Okay, so that's how everyone here showed up. <laughs> and uh, when uh, I was working with the company that produced this video, uh, there was a lot of discussion why it takes uh, 200 million sperm to fertilize one egg. And the only conclusion some people came to is that uh, guys don't like to stop for directions. So, and, and they're always in a hurry, so it takes 200 million for one egg. In any case, <clears throat> so at that moment, you had 23,000 genes, uh, half from your mother and half from your father. Uh, for those of you who are not, and I believe a lot of people here obviously are scientists or biologists or physicians, but in case uh, of any lay people here, a gene is a stretch of DNA that codes for a protein. Uh, it's also a unit of heredity, and DNA, of course, stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. There are three billion base pairs that go to make the human genome. But only four letters uh, standing for those chemical bases, adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, A, T, C, and G, which is the alphabet of all life. The life of a fruit fly, the life of a bacterium, the life of a rhinoceros, a banana, a chimpanzee, or a human being. So while the English language has about 26 letters, not about it has 26 letters. Life has only four letters. And it's the combination of these letters that gives us the 23,000 genes that make a human zygote. The actual carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen that goes into the DNA uh, originally came from a dying supernova. So the oxygen going to your brain right now in your hemoglobin or the carbon in your fingernails, they may have come from different galaxies. It takes almost the entire universe to conspire to create that um, zygote that uh, life begins with, the human life. And in those nine months of gestation, there is the recapitulation of all of evolution. So there's a uh, there's an expression used by some biologists that ontogeny repeats phylogeny. So during those nine months, you remember, literally, your, at least your genes remember, the history of life on our planet, which began about 3.8 billion years ago with the first living organisms uh, called chemolithoautotrophic hyperthermophiles that lived on the rims of volcanoes and ultimately evolved into all of life. So during those nine months, all of that memory is there. 65% of your genes are the same as a banana. 80% are the same as a mouse. About 70% are the same as a fruit fly. And almost 99%, 98-point-something are the same as a chimpanzee. So it's a very interesting journey to gestation, and then through embryogenesis, um, which involves literally not only evolutionary memory, but cosmic memory, because um, of um, the fact that in order for the cosmos to be what it is, uh, you have to have certain 
constants, and I'm not an expert. I know Dr. Larry Smar is sitting in the back and will find probably faults with what I'm going to say. But the universe is very fine-tuned for life and mind. I have had conversations with Freeman Dyson, who said three riddles have puzzled him all his life. Number one, the unpredictable movement of atoms. Not random, he said unpredictable movement of atoms. Number two, a universe fine-tuned for life and mind. And number three, our own consciousness. So there's a big mystery, despite what you hear about uh, the Big Bang and the fact that 96% of the universe is actually dark matter and dark energy, only 4% is atomic, and of that 4% that is atomic, 99.999% is invisible interstellar dust. So the visible universe with the billions of galaxies, and now we are told trillions of possibly habitable planets, um, not just our galaxy, but Andromeda, Virgo, and on and on, is 0.01% of the total universe. That is atomic. Um, And as you know, atoms are particles, and particles have a dual nature. They're also waves. As particles, they occupy space and time. They have units of mass and energy. And as waves, they exist only as possibilities. So I think some of the mystery is lost about our existence when we look just at little bits and pieces. And my definition of spirituality is to uh, the re-enchantment of our own mystery, the mystery of our existence, the mystery of life, the mystery of how that double-stranded DNA, uh, through approximately 50 replications, only 50 replications, becomes almost 100 trillion cells that it takes to make a human being. And uh, this process of morphogenesis and differentiation, where one becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, and soon you have more cells in the human body than all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Remembering the mystery of existence from the moment of the Big Bang right through bursting, burning stars and the creation of atoms and ultimately of DNA and then of life, and not only human life, but the replication of all life as we emerge. And then as you come out of the womb, provided it's not a cesarean section, then you inhale the secretions of your mother, the vaginal secretions, you swallow them, you're covered by them, and this is the second inoculation of what would, could really be called the second genome, 2.2 additional genes that come from microbes, approximately 2,000 species. So for every uh, gene that you have, you have approximately 150 times more bacterial genes. And now life begins, and uh, you know, hopefully there's a lot of cooing and cuddling and singing and touching and licking and kissing, and uh, experience starts to happen. And as a result of this and the interaction between the microbiome and the human genome, but more importantly, the experience of life in the form of the five senses, sound, touch, 
sight, taste, smell, but also emotional connections between family and baby, between mother and baby, between uh, the limbic emotional brain of the mother and the emotional brain of the baby who's watching her eyes, listening to her voice, watching her facial expressions and body language because there's no linguistic language. You have a third structure that starts to develop, what we now call the epigenome, a sheath of proteins above the gene, and this exquisite interaction between the genome um, that you inherited, the microbiome, which represents literally the ecology of the earth, and the epigenome, which is the result of experience. Experience, perceptual experience, emotional experience, nutrition, sleep, and movement, and now emotions. You have the epigenetic mechanisms that start to regulate gene expression, and of course the gene is talking to the microbiome. It's an amazing cosmic symphony that is being enacted that we call life. So I first met Rudy at a TED Med after a brain conference, and I met him in the uh, men's room in the urinal, and I, I said to Rudy, uh, do you think, Rudy, our brains and our genes are no nouns or verbs? And he said, let's go outside and we'll talk. <laughs> and we started an email communication, which led to our collaboration. And uh, when we say super genes, we actually mean this collaboration between genes, microbiome, and epigenome. So here's what I'd like to present to you. You know, we, I come from a tradition uh, which my training was as, of course, a medical doctor, an internist, and then an endocrinologist and a neuroendocrinologist, but I also have a background in Eastern wisdom traditions where the ontological primitive of reality of everything is consciousness. So, you know, we have a different ontological assumption in the Western world where um, the basic uh, idea is that uh, the, everything is random, uh, that uh, mutations are random. Uh, but uh, if you look at the Eastern wisdom traditions, they say uh, beyond all this physical stuff, beyond the forces and elements of nature, beyond the atoms, beyond the particles, beyond the possibility waves, is, uh, uh, is an underlying, and you don't have to buy into this philosophy, but it helped me in my growth, uh, is uh, something called consciousness. And that consciousness is self-organizing, it's self-evolving, it's self-regulating, it is recursive, it remembers its own history, and then as it evolves, it's not only recursive, but it expresses itself as complementarity. So mind, body are one unit. Just like we use waves, particles as one, one idea, or, um, or uh, mass, energy as one idea in the West, mind, body is one unit. And uh, mind, body are complementarities of this deep underlying self-regulating, self-evolving, self-organizing, uh, recursive, uh, creative, uh, deep intelligence 
at the heart of the universe. And that there is no such thing as a structure. There is no such thing as a thing. When you look at anything, you end up uh, seeing that it's an activity. So the human body is an activity, the universe is an activity, particles are activities, the body-mind is an activity, and the human body is then understood as a dynamic activity of seeming non-change in the midst of change, what we call homeostasis in the West. But it's only seeming non-change because uh, from the moment of birth, your body is also changing through you know, it's developing, and there are mechanisms for not only differentiation as you um, are born, but after birth there are uh, mechanisms lying deeply hidden within your genome. Uh, as you know, only 2% of DNA is coding, so the rest is now called intergenic, where there are mechanisms for regulation, for when puberty will come, when senescence will start and the whole life cycle will repeat itself. So based on this, we look at the human body as uh, an expression of all these things. Uh, sensory experience, sleeping, waking, breathing, nutrition, metabolism, environment, nature, uh, universe, but complementary to that are thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires, memories, imagination, insight, intuition, creativity, this is all one dance. And by understanding this dance, we can see that the human body is never still. So when we look at biological mechanisms in terms of molecular biology, we're actually not fully understanding the deeper activity that is constantly in motion. So this is not a unique uh, notion in the East. Uh, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus is well known for saying that no man can step into the same river twice because it's a new man, it's a new river. So now I think we can start to look at this scientifically. Uh, the body that you're using right now to listen to my lecture is not the one that you came in with a little while ago. You can look at any of these processes, but even if you think of the simple act of breathing, with every breath you breathe in 10 to the power of 22 atoms. With every breath you breathe out 10 to the power of 22 atoms that ultimately are coming from all the cells of your body. So at this level, you're breathing out bits and pieces of your heart and kidney and brain tissue. And technically speaking, we're all intimately sharing our organs with each other all the time. <laughs> Okay, so, you know, the physical body that you have right now is not the one that you had even a little while ago. In less than one year, you replace 98% of all the molecules and atoms of your body. So you're replacing your stomach lining every five days, your skin every month, your skeleton every three months, believe it or not, and even the DNA, which, as we saw, holds the memories of millions of years of evolutionary time, the actual stuff, the carbon, the hydrogen, the oxygen, it comes and goes every six weeks like migratory birds. So this is my year 2016 model. And uh, <laughs> the last time I came to UCSD to give a lecture, um, uh, Paul brought me in the same automobile, but with a different body. Okay. <laughs> 
So this is one of the big insights in Eastern wisdom traditions that you have a being that is a constant, but experience is never a constant. So your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, the molecules of your body are experiences you are having as a more fundamental consciousness. And so with this then, all the modalities of treatment become looking at these things that cause the change in our bodies. Okay, so the modalities of treatment are actually looking at activity and how this sensory experience, eating, breathing, digestion, metabolism, elimination, uh, thought, feeling, emotion, desire, uh, personal relationships, social interactions, environment, all seen as one unified holistic activity. There's no division between mind and body, no division between biological organism and environment or even the universe because it's all one phenomenon. It's all one unified activity. And according to this wisdom tradition, it's an activity in an ontological primitive that is called consciousness. So I could talk about that in great detail at some other time, but you know, the opposite of this holistic activity, of course, is what has become the number one epidemic of our civilization that we call stress, which is defined in the West as that which uh, uh, is perceived as stress, uh, that which is perceived as, uh, as a threat, either physical threat or psychological threat. But, you know, interestingly, there's no word that is equivalent of stress in the Vedic or Ayurvedic tradition. Uh, there isn't, a, I remember going to a conference with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi in the early 70s where people were talking about stress and he listened very carefully and after they all left he said, he called me and he said, what is this stress? And I had to explain to him what it was and he kind of nodded, uh-huh, uh-huh, but he didn't really get it because uh, the way he defined uh, um, stress ultimately as we got to know him was not that which is perceived as a threat but that which interferes with the spontaneous expression of uh, the invisible awareness that manifests as mind, body and all phenomenon. Anyway, I don't have to belabor this point that it has become the number one epidemic of our civilization, which can start with mental and emotional disturbances, ultimately lead to behavioral problems, and uh, ultimately to physical uh, disturbances. And there's no one system in the body that escapes, whether you're looking at the immune system, or cardiovascular system, or inflammatory bowel disease, or just about any disease. So. Given that, when we started working with Paul, I said uh, the system of Ayurveda is very elaborate, by the way. It talks about every experience, experience of color, experience of smell, experience of taste, uh, sensual experience, sexual experience, mental experience. So I said, let's take a few of these important things to start with. Of course, at our center, we do go into all the, you know, how each color, each taste, every possible smell affects your, what we call, psychophysiological body type, 
But let's look at five most important pillars of physical well-being, and we identified them as these. So uh, in Ayurveda, by the way, sleep is a spiritual experience. Deep sleep particularly is the experience of returning to uh, your state of uh, fundamental being, fundamental awareness, which is beyond subject and object. But we know, of course, that sleep, uh, a lot of attention is coming to sleep now in, in the West, and that it probably is one of the most efficient ways to improve your health and immunity. But uh, very little is talked about unconscious processing that occurs in sleep, that uh, there is, in fact, a lot more activity in deep sleep in terms of creativity and consolidation of memory and and self-regulation that occurs every day with sleep. So sleep is a spiritual experience as understood in the Ayurvedic tradition. It's one of the states of consciousness. So, you know, we have seven states of consciousness defined in the Vedanta uh, waking state, which is presumably everyone here is in that state. And then there's the dream state. And then there's the deep sleep state, which is returning to baseline consciousness. But then there are four other states beyond that. Transcendental consciousness, where you have a glimpse of the observer in the midst of the observation. It's not very difficult. You can just experience it right now. As you're listening to me, just turn your attention to who's listening. So as you're listening to me, just be aware of who's listening. So this is presence. And what is it the presence of? Just awareness. And it's the most self-regulatory state. And then this is called the fourth state. And the fifth state is when you can have the experience of this presence, which is the observer in the midst of observation, even during sleep and dreams. It's referred to as being local and non-local at the same time being in the spiritual domain and the physical domain at the same time. It's also referred to as cosmic consciousness. So that would be the fifth state. The sixth state is where you feel the presence in every object of your perception. And the seventh state is when you realize that there's only one presence and we are all differentiated aspects of that one presence. So this is a very fertile area of research now because we are trying to map the brain in different states of consciousness as defined in Eastern wisdom traditions, not only with emotions, but actually with what we call higher states of consciousness, where you go beyond waking, dreaming, sleeping into these more expanded states. And the, the basis of looking at this is that according to the Vedanta and Ayurveda, Reality is different in different states of consciousness. Biology is different in different states of consciousness. Um, perception is different in different states of consciousness. And as we expand into these states, there's more intuition, more insight, more creativity. And ultimately, because it's non-local and therefore not subject to time, there is the absence of the fear of death. And um, these states are uh, states that people aspire to in the wisdom tradition of Vedanta, of which Ayurveda is only one offshoot. Uh, it's all about expanding consciousness. So we have then taken that understanding and then combined it with meditation. And so with, uh, in the last three years or so, we've been looking at 
you know, there's a lot of talk these days everywhere you go. People are talking about mindfulness and so on. But actually, meditation, mindfulness, first of all, is an inappropriate word because when you're practicing mindfulness, you're not using your mind. The awareness of the mind is not the mind. The awareness of a thought is not a thought. The awareness of an emotion is not an emotion. So mindfulness is here to stay. We we'll, uh, won't object to the word. And awarefulness would be clumsy. So, but this is one aspect of meditation. There are other aspects of meditation, such as self-reflection, such as transcendence, such as emotional uh, cultivation of emotions like love, compassion, joy, equanimity, empathy. So when you look at the total package of meditation, which is what we do at the Chopra Center, is when people take instruction in meditation, they're taught first what is called vipassana, which would be the equivalent of uh, mindfulness. Uh, but it's uh, being aware not only of your breath, but of your thoughts, of your emotions, of your mental space, of your body, of your internal space, uh, which a lot of people actually do when they practice yoga in one form or another. So uh, there is that aspect, there's reflection, who am I, what do I want, what's my purpose, what am I grateful for, all these have different biological components. You know, it's obvious that whatever mental experience you have has to have a, a biological a counterpart, but nobody's actually looked at all these different aspects. So we decided to do that uh, with reflection, with mind, the, what we call mindfulness, with transcendence, and also with body awareness and awareness of sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts. And so this is a very comprehensive program and that we have a retreat for that lasts a week, and uh, we chose to call it the seduction of spirit. And uh, we, I, I was uh, lucky enough to be introduced to Elizabeth Blackburn, who, as you know, is a Nobel laureate who won the Nobel Prize for telomerase. And her, um, her colleague, Alyssa uh, Appel, and then Rudy at uh, Harvard, Eric Schott at Mount Sinai, and of course, with Paul's help and our own physicians, we first actually just looked at telomerase activity, and we found that in one week of our retreat, telomerase had gone up by 40%, which was very unexpected. And uh, uh, Elizabeth then looked at uh, telomere length, which had also increased, and at this point, we did a whole bunch of molecular um, work. So we looked at uh, several genomes, and we looked at those genomes that were responsible for, or genes that were responsible for self-regulation, homeostasis, wound healing, and heart health, and we found that they'd all increased their activity, uh, some 17-fold over baseline. Uh, this paper, by the way, is under review at, in Nature at the moment. We've been asked to resubmit it as is usual, with a, few, with a few corrections, so we hope to see its publication very soon. And all the genes that were responsible for inappropriate inflammation, including genes associated with cardiovascular disease, which, by the way, the risk factors for cardiovascular disease are the risk factors for almost every other chronic illness. 
diabetes, Alzheimer's, they all went down significantly. So much so that Eric Schott, whose slide this is at Mount Sinai, he said at a, one of our conferences, he said, I can predict with 98% accuracy uh, who is uh, practicing this particular meditation. That I have a, this is a genetic signature for this meditation. So somebody in the audience said, Dr. Schott, do you meditate? He said, no. I said, are you planning to? He said, no. He said, but you just showed us this slide. He said, yes, I'm going to figure out how to make a drug out of this. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how we think as scientists anyway. So this work has now extended, uh, and we are also looking at what is now called biofield science, because as you know, every biological organism um, creates an electromagnetic field around it. And you can look at this electromagnetic field today through technology. Um, and you can understand it even uh, at a more fundamental level. Is the biofield a quantum-like process? Is it emerging from the quantum vacuum? Because what we perceive as the body in classical physics is actually a perception for which we don't even have an explanation. Right now, for example, as you're looking to, at me, all that's going to your eyes is photons. And all that's going to your brain is an action potential. And all that's happening in your brain is uh, ionic shifts along, along cell membranes. How do you experience this? No one knows. That's called the hard problem of consciousness. And you know, it's very obvious that the experience you're having right now of seeing me couldn't be happening in your brain. What's happening in your brain is electrochemistry, but you're experiencing three-dimensional reality with color and sound and all these textures. And you can't explain this. And nobody even asks themselves. We can't explain perceptual experience. We can't explain mental experience. We can't explain uh, emotional experience. All we can look at is biological correlates, but there's no explanation. This room doesn't fit inside your brain. So what is happening? And so, you know, when in the tradition that I come from, it says you've got, you know, instead of asking yourself what's the biological basis of consciousness, you should be asking how is consciousness expressing itself as biology? Because ultimately the ontological primitive is only consciousness, which then we experience as energy, matter, space-time, and all of that. So thankfully, these, these wonderful scientists that we've been able to get together are now creating a model for us to study the human biofield and also giving us a physics perspective. And you know, the human biofield can be measured about eight feet from where you are. And according to Ayurveda anyway and Vedanta, the biofield is an expression of your state of consciousness. So if you're agitated, if you're feeling resentment and anger and grievance and you're in a, in a riot or you, you're uh, involved in a terrorist organization or whatever, then your biofield will be very incoherent. On the other hand, if you're in a state of meditation and peace and equanimity, your biofield will be coherent and our biofields all interfere with each other, creating interference patterns and there may be such a thing as a collective biofield, which uh, Maharishi used to talk about in the early 60s and 70s, that if you have a 
the presence of peaceful people, they create peace. Not by what they say, not by what they do, but their presence. And so now at least we have a theoretical way to look at that. And of course now we have the science of epigenetics that can look at markers in these states of consciousness. So while we're very interested in diet, lifestyle, environment, drugs, in utero and childhood development, very much more interested in how consciousness influences these epigenetic mechanisms. I'm not going to go into details of this, but you know that these are very specific on-off switches that are turned on and off um, as a result of experience. And that experience can be mental experience, it can be emotional experience, it can be spiritual experience. Um, and you can actually see what's happening in both the biofield, in the epigenetic me uh, mechanisms and gene expression. So this is also part of our collaboration now with Eric Topol and his group um, uh, that uh, Paul Mills and I and our center are collaborating with. And we have a couple of papers already out in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience, which are looking at the cardiovascular and nervous system changes during meditation and uh, uh, digital uh, uh, studies of both uh, uh, heart, heart rate variability, uh, heart activity, electric uh, activity, and brain activity. And these, are, these changes happen immediately, within seconds. And this is another thing that I found out, uh, found in the new scientist, and I went to the source, but it's very interesting um, article published in Nature Communications that basically says that um, uh, your state of consciousness can influence um, um, gene expression in a wireless-powered uh, optogenic designer self-implant. So you have a group of people in meditation, and their brainwaves are being transmitted to, this, to these mouse DNA, and you can see the activity. Suggesting once again that consciousness is not only transpersonal, but transspecies. I was thinking, the dog in the White House has no idea that Obama is an important guy. Okay? <laughs> he has no idea what the Oval Office is. Okay? How does he and Obama relate to each other? Well, they share some kind of consciousness. And so if Obama is nice to him, he wags his tail basically, and he's happy. And so our consciousness not only transcends our personal identity, it extends across species. So that's, again, going back to Eastern wisdom traditions, consciousness sleeps in rocks and minerals, consciousness dreams in plants, consciousness starts to wake up in animals, and then humans it says, who am I and what's going on? So it becomes self-aware in human beings. So this is actually the journey of evolution is also the journey of the evolution of consciousness in this tradition. As I said, you don't have to buy into this uh, model, but it does help explain a lot of things. Okay, so these are the higher states of consciousness that are part of our literature. Transcendence, peak experiences, flow, non-local awareness, which means beyond subject-object split, intuition and creativity is an expression of that, and then archetypal awareness, which is basically symbolic expressions of collective consciousness, and ultimately 
um, having an experience of the source of all creation. So what we have started now is this new study. It's called SBTI. SBTI stands for Self-Directed Biological Transformation Initiative. So Rudy and I wrote an article about this, and then everybody said, let's also participate. And now we have this whole collaboration. Everyone uh, you can see here who are collaborating with us. And this is a very extensive, ambitious study that is looking at everything that we do in Ayurveda, including herbalized massage, including Ayurvedic herbs, including a predominantly plant-based diet, including yoga, meditation, and what we call conscious communication. Conscious communication is communication where the purpose of speech is only to create joy and healing and equanimity and the experience of empathy and compassion and love. And so we are looking at just about everything. So these are our collaborators. Uh, 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 Rudy is looking at whole gene, genome sequencing, uh, Alzheimer's-related uh, amyloid beta protein, uh, cytokine levels, and epigenetic changes. And then at Mount Sinai, again, all the informatics, microbiome. Um, uh, Christine uh, is helping with that at Sanford Burnham. We are working with Scripps to look at uh, mobile EEG and ECG, heart rate variability, and electro, uh, electric activity during physical activity, sleep, and uh, during breathing techniques with pranayam. There are about 108 pranayam techniques, breathing techniques that we can look at. But what we also want to look at is now biofield in a big way, and that's our next protocol that we have uh, IRB approval for, where we can actually look at collective biofields and how intention and emotion influences that. So this is what is being done at UCSD with the help of Paul Mills and his team. At Duke, they're doing metabolomic analysis, correlating with mood assessments. Uh, Christine is doing microbiome assessment, and of course, Elizabeth is doing other things, including mitochondrial DNA health. We are actually collecting uh, terabytes of data right now, which is being analyzed, and some of the papers are in submission, and some are still being looked at. Also looking, Christine is looking at the bidirectional traffic between gut and brain, and how that relates to everything from inflammatory markers to short-chain fatty acids, and how that relates to mood and cognition. And this is a paper that uh, Paul led, uh, led the investigation where people were keeping a, a gratitude journal and writing down at the end of the day, I am grateful for looking at inflammatory markers and overall state of well-being. This paper has just been recently published, and that's the summary of the paper. This is from another institution which shows that even the simple practice of gratitude changes uh, brain activity, causes neurogenesis and synaptogenesis in the prefrontal cortex. So these are some of the studies that are in progress now, including uh, a breast cancer survivorship study. Dan Vicario is here somewhere, um, integrative oncologist and uh, helps us at the Chopra Center, and he's 
Um, thankfully, thanks to him, we have a lot of oncologists in this area from UCSD who are going to help us with this study. Uh, we are planning to look at uh, the pineal gland, as you know, in meditation, melatonin goes up, and melatonin is associated with uh, many hormonal changes uh, elsewhere as well. And then Ayurvedic massage, movement, yoga, and uh, also exercise. Um, um, and we are also looking at actually different aspects of yoga. You know. The word asana in yoga means seat of awareness. So when you do these different asanas, different yoga postures, they all have different effects on different nerves in the body. So one of the most important nerves, of, of course, is the vagus. And now there is evidence that if you stimulate the vagus, which is approved, by the way, for intractable epilepsy, um, that some people who have chronic asthma or rheumatoid arthritis or irritable bowel, they get better. And so it seems like the vagus nerve is one of the most important nerves. It influences the tone of your voice, uh, your uh, lung capacity, your heart rate variability, but then it goes into your gut and it, it innervates almost every organ in, in the abdomen. And then there's bi-directional traffic. So there, there's a lot of potential for looking at different yoga postures and you know people like Smith Klein and Glaxo and others are doing what is called bioelectrical medicine where they're actually implanting electrodes uh, in these nerves and then stimulating them from the outside and I met with some of these R&D people and I said we can do this with yoga and breathing and they said yes but how do we make money <laughs> okay so specific uh, components of yoga can affect cognitive, emotional, behavioral, and autonomic output. And so uh, we are also looking at the role of emotions and how that uh, affects self-regulation, uh, opiates, dopamine, serotonin, immunomodulation, and now particularly looking at nutrition because in Ayurveda, your food is not good unless it has seven colors of the rainbow and the six tastes of life. And if you include the six tastes of life, which are sweet, sour, salt, bitter, pungent, astringent, and the seven colors of the rainbow, then you have all the micronutrients. And triphala is a very important Ayurvedic herb. It's triphala means three fruits, three herbs. And uh, uh, it has not only antioxidant effects, but could possibly affect gene expression. Gugulu is another very important herb that is used as a, a cholesterol-lowering agent, but it seems to regulate gene expression as well. And these are some of the herbs that have been used to treat inflammation. So this is our next project. We have a lot of work to do and see what the combinations do. So I'd like to conclude shortly with these ideas. Uh, I could talk a long time because Physical well-being, emotional well-being, spiritual well-being are important, but so are social well-being, your network and family and friends, your uh, community well-being, your financial well-being, your career well-being. These are all part, by the way, even though Gallup is now doing kind of very good measurements of this and metrics on this, in Ayurveda, these are all addressed 
as dharma and karma and other words for it. But here's the bottom line. Your body is a process, it's not a structure. There are no nouns in the universe. There are conventions of language. At a fundamental level, your body is an energy and information field. But at an even more fundamental level, it's part of a consciousness field. It's, um, it's formless. Call it what you will, the quantum vacuum or whatever, but the ontological primitive of the universe is formless. And out of which, uh, of course, we think um, comes all energy, all information, and mind-body as one unit. Mind-body as one unit. Your genes are influenced by your thoughts, emotions, relationships, social interactions, and environment. You can change the structure of your brain to optimize physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being through practices, spiritual practices. You can change the wiring of your brain. This, uh, presumably all the people who are in genetics know this, but I did not know this till five years ago, that only 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant, that there's a one-to-one correspondence between the mutation and the disease. And that holds true for Alzheimer's, for cancer. You know, Baraka gene is a fully penetrant gene, but there are so many genes involved in breast cancer that are influenced, their expression is influenced by lifestyle. And this is something that Dan and his uh, group are going to help us elucidate. That you can change your relationship to time that actually re sets your biological clock. So let me try a little experiment, and I'm going to use Paul for the experiment. Uh, Paul, are you aware right now? (laughs) Yes. Okay, so I asked Paul, uh, is he aware? And he said yes. And uh, so who did he consult before he answered the question? Okay, obviously everybody's aware. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to my lecture. So I'm going to try another experiment very quickly, to give you a little bit of insight. Um, I'm going to ask the same question. Are you aware? And I don't want anyone to answer it till I raise my hand. Is that a deal? Are you aware? So, are you aware is a thought. Yes is a thought. In between is awareness, is consciousness. So now uh, if I ask you the same question, are you aware? Don't answer it, just slip into being aware of being aware. (laughs) It's very easy. Are you aware? And the presence that you feel is simple awareness. And this is the most intelligent state. The highest state of intelligence is just awareness. And over here, there's self-regulation, self-organization, evolution, homeostasis, you name it. So even though we do elaborate uh, um, meditations at our center, the purpose is to live here to live in awareness, where sensations, images, feelings, and thoughts on the screen of awareness are just 
coming and going, and you are a silent witness of them. So you can be engaged and you can be detached at the same time. <clears throat> and so this is called yoga in action. Okay, one can be in the state of awareness all the time, and this would change your relationship to time because you'd always be present. As you saw, even in that question, there was presence. Are you aware? Am I aware? There's presence. And ultimately then, awareness is the key to transformation. Now we are expanding on that, and I'm not going to go into that, but here's the last thing I want to say, and uh, uh, I'm going to, and even though time is an illusion, I can see the clock moving there. <laughs> so what I'll say is that uh, according to the tradition I come from, says you can have everything you want, but ultimately you're going to grow old, there's going to be infirmity, and you're going to die. Okay, that was uh, uh, what happened to the Buddha. You know, he had everything, and he said, you know, there's still the problem of old age, uh, suffering, and death. And so uh, he drew upon the great traditions that came before him, because the Vedic tradition goes back uh, 6,000 years B.C., and Buddha was 24, um, you know, it was 200 years later than this tradition. But Buddha drew on this. He said, human suffering comes from not knowing the true nature of reality, clinging on to that which is transient, illusory. That's basically a movement in consciousness. Every thought, every feeling, every emotion, every sensory experience is is in consciousness. So consciousness is that in which experience occurs. Consciousness is that in which experience is known. And consciousness is that out of which experience is made. And all experience is only four things. Sensations, images, feelings, thoughts. Sensory experience. And he said, and if you notice this, you'll see it's just a movement in your own being. And, but what happens is you're trying to hold on to something that it is impossible to hold on to. It's the superstition of materialism. Uh, you're afraid of that which is transient. You're identifying yourself with the false, constricted, habitual, socially induced hallucination called the ego, and you're afraid of death. And he summarized it, they said, and he said the solution of that is try and figure out what is the true nature of reality. The formless being in which all phenomena arises and subsides and is perceived as form. So every form is a phenomenon, and every phenomenon is a movement in the formless being, which is who you really are. Now that's summarizing a lot of, lot of tradition in a short time, but the key ends up being meditation. Meditation is not just to manage your stress. Meditation is to wake up to your true identity. Thank you very much.